Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, there's, uh, there's so much to discuss. Um, this, uh, in a few days, we, we have uh, Yom Kippur. And, um, you know, you've, you've probably, I I've, I've myself have said this many times, so you've probably heard this um, uh, yourself, uh, but I, I don't know that we fully prepare for the, the enormity of this idea, which is that Yom Kippur is one of the happiest days of the year. And um, it takes a while. The, the emotions and the intellect aren't always uh, in lockstep. In fact, they're, they're often not in lockstep. And, and famously, it's said that the, the greatest distance in the entire world is, is, is the space between the, the mind and the heart. Bless you. So, so that's the intellect and the emotions. Getting the heart and the mind together is, is you know, one of the... One, one of the great projects of human civilization that we're trying to evolve towards. So, so just telling someone to feel a certain way uh, usually doesn't work. Um, so people have to contemplate it and they have to think about it. So in other words, if you just say that Yom Kippur is one of the happiest days of the year, that doesn't necessarily make someone excited. So I'm telling you now, and I want to begin with this now, because... Get excited. That's the point. <laughs> Think about it. Understand it. Let's try to understand it together so that we can actually be looking forward to Yom Kippur coming in the way that you might be anticipating, say, wow, it's my birthday, or there's a big party, or there's a big concert coming, like something very, a vacation, something very, very exciting is right on the horizon. I can't wait. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I can't wait for this to happen. That's how we should all be feeling about Yom Kippur right now. Because it's one of the happiest days of the year. Because our souls are getting cleansed. Now, it's very important that we, we appreciate, like, try to wrap our minds around it. You know, it's one of those things that we've heard so many times in our, in our life. But it's sort of like, well, it, I don't know if it necessarily has sunk in what that actually means. It means a new start. It means a new start. You see, the thing is, is that there's kind of a barrier that, that uh, you know, the word sin is not a Jewish word. It, it's, not, it's not a Jewish word. You'll hear it discussed a lot. Um, chet is, is more of a, is, is, is a Hebrew word, which is often translated as sin. But sin is not a, is not a Hebrew word. It's not, it's not a Jewish concept. So what do we say then? What is, what is chet? Chet in modern Hebrew means to miss. And I heard... Um, Rabbi Aaron said that he was once um, on a soccer field in, in Israel and someone kicked the ball and missed the goal and people were yelling, hey, hey, right? Which is kind of funny if you know it also means, it's also translated as sin, as though it were a great sin that the person didn't score a goal. But, 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 but let's get more to the point. What does it mean to miss? When you miss, let's say there's a certain action that we're, that, that we're responsible to do, that we're commanded to do. Right, a, a mitzvah. A lot of times, when we when we don't do it, what does it mean that we don't do it? That we miss it. That's the actual accurate Hebrew uh, translation. We miss it, which means what? That means that we either did too little, or we did too much. Right? We miss the mark. We we either, you know, like for instance. Um, we, we have a mitzvah to, to speak the truth. It's important to speak the truth. 
At the same time, though, we have two other mitzvahs. One is not to hurt someone's feelings. And another is uh, not to speak Lashon Hara. A lot of people think that speaking Lashon Hara, which is, you know, this great misuse of speech, which causes, you know, so much uh, sorrow and hardship um, in the world, that that's only if you lie. People think that's only if you lie. But if you, you know... If you, if you go up to someone and you actually say something that's true, you know, like, like you read, you, I don't know, there's a zillion examples, right? Um, you go up to someone and, and they just lost, I don't know, let's say they just lost a fortune in the stock market, something that made the papers. And let's say you know the person. And you walk up to the person and go, you lost $100 million in the stock market. And the person's like, you know, the person's falling apart already. And you say, and you say well, that's certainly not Lashon Hara, because what I said was true. That, you know, whatever it is. In other words, sometimes you think that if, if you've said something true, that's not Lashon Hara. But it, but it is Lashon Hara if it's, if, it, if it's hurtful to the person, right? Um, there are exceptions to this, which, which we all have to know, which is if, if someone is... Is, is thinking of dating someone that you know is a, a known scoundrel, you, you do have an obligation to, to tell that person that that person is a scoundrel. Person's whatever. You, you, just so you know, that person's been to jail multiple times. You're, you're aware of that, right? You, that, that, that is a truth that, that has to be shared. Or, or um, if someone wants to get into business with someone else, you know that person is like, uh, you know, has... Is, is been convicted or has been sued multiple times for his business practices. That, that, that's something that you can say. But just to walk up, up to someone and to comment on their appearance and to say something which everyone would agree with and is, in fact, accurate, that, 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 that we can't do. So, so in other words, that would be an example of missing by saying too much. <laughs> Right, but what if you know that that person's not a great guy, and you're not telling the other person? That would be missing by saying too little. Right, so in both instances, you are now chayiv. You are now guilty because you missed the mark. You, so, so we have to we have to jigger ourselves in the way that we're actually in tune with the halacha. The halacha, Jewish law, remember, it, halacha is translated as Jewish law, but it's, it's much more beautiful than that, what, what, what the translation for halacha is. Halacha means the way, and halacha means a path. It has the word holech in it, which means to walk, which means that you're in harmony, you're walking down the, the paved roads of, of the structure of reality, of existence, and everything like that. You're in harmony. That's what you want to be. So what's the opposite of missing? The opposite of missing is being in harmony. And how are we, practically speaking, in harmony? When we're walking along the way, which is what? Which is halacha. Okay, so we want to, we want to be in sync. Okay. So... So a lot of this is done by fine-tuning ourselves. I had an experience, and it was just such an average mundane experience, but because of, I guess, 
these exalted days that we're in right now, it just took on great metaphorical meaning, which is we were locked out of this, uh, we were locked out of the shul, and we wanted to get into the shul, and I had actually, on this rare occasion, had brought a set of keys, and um, I guess there's a reason why I never bring the keys, because it turned out the keys didn't work. There was, the keys were not the, the keys to the door we were trying to get into. And then, you know, someone else came up with a set of keys right afterwards, and it was sort of like, oh, great, okay, well, he's got the keys, that's good. And, and I said, I only have two keys, neither of them work. He says, I have three keys. His three keys didn't work. <laughs> so, and then another person showed up, and actually, they actually had the keys that, that, that worked. And I thought, again, just because I was in this kind of like, you know, mind-expanded place, that it was sort of like, you know, this is kind of like the generations. It's like, you know, it's wave after wave. Each generation shows up with, with the key, so to speak, trying to, trying to fit the key into the door. And, and there will be a generation, a wave that comes with a key that actually works, you know? But, but, but here's the thing. We also know, let's not take that too literally, because we also know that a Mashiach can come any day, which means every generation has the capacity to be the key. See, it's, it's, like, it's like, don't have the key, be the key. Well, have you ever seen a key made? Keys are, you know, they have these ridges, and the thing is, is that if, if a ridge is too high, it's not going to open up the door. But if the key, if the ridge is a little bit lower, or if the ridge is a little bit higher, all of a sudden it, it does open up the door. So I think, again, not to overwork this metaphor, but it's, it's meaningful to me, is that these small adjustments that we can make in terms of our character traits can be the, trans, can be the transformation into what actually opens up the door for us in our lives. And they don't have to be, just think of a key. They don't have to be these radical changes. It's a small change. This one's a little lower. This one's a little higher, right? Or maybe this one's gone altogether. And then all of a sudden, the door opens. That's, that's, that's how I'm suggesting that we approach the character work that we have to do all of the time, but especially now. Especially now. So, so I've given this example before, but I want to go more in depth into, into the, uh, the idea behind it right now. So I told you that there was a, I was in Israel and I, I, I read about a, um, a horrible terrorist attack that was averted, thank God. And what, the, what, what happened was there was going to be a very crowded beach day. It's going to be a, a big day in Tel Aviv. And this, um, this uh, dinghy of, 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 of terrorists was going to come and just, just try to do slaughter on the beach, right? They, and, and the problem was, or not the problem, it was a great blessing, they were off just a few degrees, like right? just a few degrees. And so while being off a few degrees from a distance didn't seem to be very meaningful, but if you like sort of point your hand a few degrees off to the side and then you extend your hand, all of a sudden you're off by quite a lot. And they, they landed in front of a military compound in Israel and they were arrested immediately and a great, a great disaster, a great tragedy was averted. So, so what I'm asking us to try to appreciate is what does it mean 
to just, again, just have that notion of sanding down the keys, just adjusting the key for a moment. What does it mean to just turn your behavior a few degrees right now? What does it mean to who you are going to be, let's just say, five years from now? In other words, if you project it, if you just turn it a little bit now, and then you stay in that path, who are you going to be five years from now? And I think that that's really, really important because you can be a completely different person with a whole different set of circumstances going on in your life. For, for the good, I'm saying, in a very, very positive way. That's, you see, the, the problem is, is that so often we're just in the moment analyzing our behavior. We're just constantly analyzing our behavior in the moment, in the moment, in the moment, in the moment. And we're not really thinking ahead in, in that way. And so we don't really see the impact of what, what, what a change can do for us. So now let me get a little bit more specific, okay? Imagine just to pick a character trait, and there are, really, there's just like many, 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 many traits. This is applying to all of our behavior, okay? And, and one's more serious than I'm going to discuss right now, but um, don't, don't limit it to the example I'm going to give you, but I just want to work in a practical example for a bit. Imagine I'm, I'm late all of the time. Imagine, um, like, just as a, a regular thing, I'm 10 minutes late, I'm always 10 minutes late, at least. And you know what? By now, if you don't know that I'm 10 minutes late all the time, that's your problem, it's not my problem. Right? Like, people do that. Like, they can actually get very arrogant about their character flaw and how it's actually your issue. What? What are you talking about? Right? Or, it's like, no, 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 I'm always late. That's, that's the thing about me. You know? That's one of the things that makes me so charming. Mm-hmm. What? No. <laughs> I'm waiting here. It's hot. And it's like uncomfortable. And I'm waiting for you. You know, so... By the way, it's a nice thing if you're running light to text the person. Just a small politeness. You know? <laughs> no, really. You know, it just helps. Um, so... I know my, my son has, just, just to tell you, I, my son had, has an exam, an important exam this morning. And, and, you know, it was going to be a rush for him to be on time, and he has to be in a very positive, settled state of mind to take this exam. And um, he got a text. The, the proctor, the one giving the exam, said, I'm running 15 minutes late. So can you imagine <laughs> if he had worked himself into a frenzy to get there on time and then had to wait, it would have really thrown him. Or it could have thrown him. So, I mean, it was a small thing. The guy took a, a moment to say, I'm running 15 minutes late. And I'm sure that might actually affect whatever his performance on that exam is. Just to give a small example. But now, let's get back to this idea of being habitually late. Now, imagine, imagine for a moment you know, think, all of us have had this experience in our life where you ran into someone from your past or maybe even from your present, but at a very opportune time. Or you were just surprised and delighted because you've been out of touch with that person. 
And it's been like, it was like a great thing to run into them. Everyone's experiences. Okay? So, but here's the thing. You know, timing is so precise, especially in life. Like, one stoplight could be the difference between having seen that person or not seeing that person. Right? Just everything is so precise with these things when you run into someone. So, so imagine right now, and I'm projecting ahead, I'm projecting again, the you five years from now, the you one year from now, the you five years from now. And again, we're talking about all sorts of character traits right now, but let's stay with lateness for, for a moment. Imagine all the people you're going to run into by surprise <laughs> that you wouldn't have run into because you're going straight, you're going on time, you're in a completely different set of coordinates as opposed to this other set of coordinates. Or, how about this, imagine all the people you're not going to run into. (laughs) That might even be better, right? That, That thought is really interesting to me, right? Or, or maybe there are other opportunities that are going to come to you, which is like, oh, that person's always on time. He's really reliable. Maybe we should ask that person to do this. You know, because somehow being on time is, is, is considered more than just being on time. That's considered, you know what, I'm a very responsible person. And you're able to project that image to other people. And then opportunities can come your way because of that. So, so these, are, these are just... These are just little things, but I want to go deeper with this idea. I want to go deeper with this idea. Again, just so you're understanding the point right now, what, what, I'm, what I'm asking us to just understand is that if you correct something in your present, and again, even if it seems like a small thing or an unimportant thing to you, right, a few degrees, an adjustment, just adjusting the ridges of your key to be the key, so to speak, what how is that going to change your life over the course of the next five years? It's, it's meaningful. It's meaningful. But again, I want to go deeper now. And I want to apply the same idea in a more sort of profound way. So, it, the rabbis teach that there are certain things that were created right before the first Shabbos. Certain, certain amazing things God put into the world. God foresaw that these things would be needed. One of the things that, that, that God foresaw was, was this ram that Avraham Avinu was going to sacrifice instead of Yitzchak Avinu. By the way, someone, uh, your son, Eli, told me that, that someone said to... Uh, to someone who he related to us, some, just an amazing thing, he, talking about lateness, he said that he knew someone who was late, and then someone said to him in the community, can you imagine if the angel who told Avraham not to sacrifice Yitzchak was late? <laughs> and he said that person was never late again. <laughs> can you imagine? So... So Hashem foresaw the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. Remember, you know, it's a, it's a whole long discussion, but we'll say it in 30 seconds, which is that, that God never told Avraham 
to sacrifice Isaac. It's very, very important that that's known. Because if you say that God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, then that means God changed his mind. And theologically, it's very important that we understand that God never changes his mind. So then you say, "Uh uh-oh, what does that mean? God never changes his mind. That means that whatever the circumstances of my life that I'm not happy with right now, I'm stuck because God never changes his mind? No, it doesn't mean that. There's certain eventualities, like, for instance, Mashiach, that are, that are fixed in the world. How we get, and in our lives, by the way, how we get to those things, though, is totally up for grabs. In other words, as I always like to quote the cop shows, we can do this in an easy way or we can do this in a hard way. <laughs> and that's largely up to us, right? How many merits we have, how much we're praying, what kind of people we become. You know, God's rachamim, God's mercy. How we get there can change in an instant, in an instant, right? So God never said sacrifice Yitzchak. What he said was, I'm going to make up an English word. He said, alterize him. That's what he said. He said, put him on an altar, which Abraham interpreted to mean sacrifice him. And God understood that Abraham would interpret that way, which was the nature of the test. That was the whole nature of the test, that Abraham should think that. But it wasn't what God said. Okay, anyway. The point being that, that after Abraham passes this amazing test, and it's his tenth test, okay? So Abraham is just in the most exalted, exalted place. This is the hardest test that was ever given to any individual in the history of humanity. Abraham passes this test. Then all of a sudden, after he's told, don't sacrifice Yitzhak, he sees there's a ram caught in the thickets. And so he goes, okay, I, I want to make an offering to God. I'll, I'll sacrifice this ram. And of course, the ram's horn is where we get the shofar blast. Okay, that's where all that comes from. So now what I'm telling you is the rabbis teach, and however we're to understand this, it's, it's, it's not crucial right now, that that ram was created at the end of the sixth day of creation. Okay, so does that mean that that ram was thousands of years old or it just that God had in mind that ram from that moment? Whatever it means, it, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that ram was prepared for that occasion from the first days of the creation of the entire world. Okay, now remember, we're still talking about being a few degrees off and lateness and all the rest. We're still on the same subject, but now let's put it all together. So there's this ram that's waiting in the thickets. And it's been waiting there, however you understand it, for a couple of thousand years. And it's there. It's stuck. It it's did its job. It wandered into this thicket and it can't get out. It did its job. It's waiting. Now, Hashem says to Abraham, put your son up on the altar. And imagine Abraham said, no, I'm good. <laughs> you know, we really waited a long time to have him. <laughs> I, I'm doing a fine job raising him. We'll, we'll do some other mitzvahs instead. That ram is waiting for Abraham. But Abraham has not elevated himself spiritually to the level 
where he's on the same plane to intersect with that, with that ram. Right? Just think of it in this horizontal, in this vertical way. Right? Up and down. Like, whatever spiritual level you're on, you go higher, higher, higher. There's a certain thing that's been waiting for Abraham since the creation of the world. Abraham has an appointment with that, land, with that ram from the creation of the world, the time of the creation of the world. And the question is, is Abraham going to keep that appointment? It's waiting for him. Is he going to keep that appointment? But how do you keep that appointment? By elevating yourself to that level. If you don't elevate yourself to that level, you're never on the same plane where you can intersect with that opportunity that's been prepared for you. Now that's true for all of us. It's true for all of us. When I say to you, what about that person if you start being on time? Again, just to use that example, but you fill, in the, fill in the blank for any character change that needs to be made, any mitzvah that needs to be fulfilled. If, if a person starts being on time five years from now, this is now sort of like the 2D version of what I'm talking, right? Like, like five years from now, who are you going to run into? But now let's apply that to the Avraham model. If you've actually elevated your character traits five years from now, what opportunity is waiting for you that you may never get to because you never elevated yourself to that level? I tell you a story just from my, my life. So I, I was talking with a guy one time, a friend, and he was telling me something. I don't remember what it was, something in his life, and I, I offered him some advice, and he wasn't happy with the advice that I was giving him. And he kind of snapped at me, and he said to me, he said, I'll listen to you when you keep the mitzvah of shotnitz. Now, we weren't talking about shotnets at all. I've never, it never ever came up between us ever. Shotnets, for those of you who don't know, this is one of the most mystical of our mitzvahs um, because we're told there's no rational explanation for this. There's a commandment, it's one of the 613 commandments, not to have a garment that has a mixture of wool and linen. Do I have my uh, tag here? No, but I brought this in. So, so you can you bring it. There are places in the neighborhood where you, you if you if you have a new suit, and this is for men and women, you have a new suit, especially if it says wool or linen in the like if it says wool and linen in the ingredients. It usually doesn't, by the way. Many garments that, in fact, I would say probably the majority of garments that have wool and linen, if you look at the tag, don't say wool and linen. By the way, that goes for. There are a lot of people who are very. Um, we, we use the word makel, meaning very sort of um, lenient about uh, what kosher products they buy. They go, you know what, I'll just read the list of ingredients, and as long as it doesn't say lard or something like this, it doesn't matter if it has a, you know, an OU or whatever hexure is on it, whatever kosher certification is on it, I'll just read the ingredients. But I was told that according to the, um, the USDA, right, that if there's less than 2% of an ingredient in it, 
they don't have to list it. So in other words, they might spray the pans with lard so that the things don't stick, but because it's such a microscopic element, or that might be an overstatement, microscopic, but because it's not a meaningful ingredient to the product, they don't have to list it, but it's still no good. But it's no good. So, so, so I'm just saying in terms of reading clothes labels, if, if a person has a wool suit, what they'll do is oftentimes, and here's the irony, this is actually done, in, I was told, in finer suits. What they'll do is they'll stitch the collar, the inside of the collar, this area over here, they'll stitch it with linen thread because that holds the shape of the collar better. And because you're just stitching it with linen thread, you don't have to list that as an ingredient ingredient to the garment. But on the spiritual level, it's that that, that would be called a mixture of, of wool and linen. Okay. Now again, we're told we can't understand it, but they're very amazing. Torahs trying to explain it and going back to Cain and Abel, the fact that one was involved in you know farming, which is like you know linen, and the other was involved with you know being a shepherd, that's like wool from a sheep, and they didn't get along, and uh, there's, that's a Zohar. Anyway, there's all sorts of very amazing explanations of it, but we're told flat out, don't think you're ever going to understand this. So, I, this was many, many years ago. I was in the period of taking on mitzvahs, trying to become observant, and, and I wasn't keeping the mitzvah of, of, of shotnitz. Um, but at a certain point, and this was before the conversation, before he yelled at me. Um, I said to myself, why am I not keeping the mitzvah of shotnitz? That's a, this is an important mitzvah. Let me bring in my jackets, my suits, and I'll have them checked. And, and, I, uh, and, so, and so I started doing the, the mitzvah. And to this day, we do the mitzvah. Um, and it's very easy. You drop off the suit, they charge you like five bucks or something like that to look, and then they let you know, and it's very easy to do. Okay. So I told the guy, I do keep the mitzvah of shanitz. And he was very surprised. I don't know if he listened to what my advice was. I don't even know what we were talking about. I don't even know if it was good advice. But it made a very big impression. I don't know if it made an impression on him. It certainly made a big impression on me, since I'm still talking about it like 30 years later. Um, but I'll tell you why it made such an impression on me. Because... and. I'm just giving you my impression right now. I'm not saying this is true, but it, it feels true to me. That so to speak, you know, when, when we start taking on mitzvahs and things like that, it's, um, you know, we, we have to be mentally balanced about it. In other words, like, like this word that we talked about, halacha, holecha, it has the word walking in it. And I heard from Rabbi Seidenfeld that that's because when you're taking on mitzvahs, you, you walk, don't run. Right. In other words, you have to do it in a. You have to do it with with the advice of a someone who who can 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 give you good advice how to do it in a way where you can integrate it a step at a time and everything like that. But at the same time, you don't want to take too long, <laughs> right? Because at a certain point, if you're taking too long, that's also called just not doing it, right? So it has to. So I felt like in heaven. There was a certain date that was sort of like a certain deadline that had been drawn that I was not aware of 
By this point, you should be keeping the mitzvah of shotness. <laughs> I didn't get any memos. Right? Because when he yelled at me, it just felt like, because it was so out of the blue, it just felt like, okay, there's the deadline, but, you know. But, it, but thank God it had been done already. So again, I want to relate this back to, I want to relate this back to this idea of, of Avraham and that there are certain opportunities that are available to us, that have been planned for us. But in order, in order to intersect with these opportunities, we have to raise ourselves up to a certain level in order to be the person who those things happen to. You see, the ram and the thickets and the chauffeur only happens to someone who's willing to put their son on the altar that they've been waiting for their entire life to have. So that to me is a very exciting thought. It's an exciting thought to, to think that there are, there are bounties waiting for you. You just got to get to the bounties, right? Now, whatever those things are, and please don't, you know, I think the mind races to the idea of riches and fame and things like that. But let's, you know, let's just take a step back. Maybe, maybe, could be. But that, that isn't really what I'm saying. That isn't necessarily what I'm saying. It really isn't. I'm, I'm talking about life experiences, opportunities, right? Which really are riches and fame. Because that's, that's really the essence of life. So, so Yom Kippur is amazing. And, and I was trying to think about it. Over Shabbos, this thought came and I got excited about it. So I want to I share it with you. You see, we really have to... Okay, let me, let me tell you something beautiful. You know, it says, it says in, the, in, in, in the Gemara that a student doesn't understand their teacher until 40 years. You have to actually think about the Rebbe's words. 40 years to understand them. And they learned that from Yoshua and, and Moshe Rabbeinu. Okay? And I know that as I go over in my head Reb Shlomo's Torahs, I know that there are certain things that, um, you know, many, many things that I'm still appreciating and understanding and everything like that. So I want to tell you uh, a Torah that he says, but I always say this on Sukkot, because it's a Sukkot Torah. But it's really, I think, a pre-Yom Kippur Torah. <laughs> so you, you'll understand what I'm saying in a second. So he says like this. He says, and he, he said this on Sukkot. I heard him say this on Sukkot. He said, if you want to know how much you were forgiven on Yom Kippur, the answer is, how much at home do you feel in the Sukkah? If you want to know how much you were forgiven on Yom Kippur, the answer is, 
how much do you feel at home in the sukkah? So I want to, I'll tell you how I, how I normally explain that, but now I want to give you a couple of different ideas, especially applying it to it's not Yom Kippur yet, because we all want to experience tremendous forgiveness on Yom Kippur. So, so let's, let's be a step ahead of this teaching. Do you understand? Let's apply this teaching in this most practical way so that we can really benefit from it. Okay, so here's how I normally say it. You see, what's the idea of a sukkah? So a sukkah is a hug. It's a divine hug. It's all around you. You're, you're being hugged. So, so I know, I think all of us have had both of these experiences where you're hugged by someone who you don't want to be hugged by. Right? And it's like, hey, I can't wait till this hug is over. <laughs> you know, that's like, I'm very uncomfortable right now. So that's, that would be how you don't want to feel in the sukkah. Because <laughs> it's sort of like, wow, I'm in this like, place that's way too religious for me. What is this hut? Why am I in here? Right? That, according to Reb Shlomo, would, would suggest a very lackluster Yom Kippur. Okay? Or... All of us, I hope, have had the experience where you've been hugged by someone you love and you never want it to end. It feels so good. It's so warm. It's so life-giving. It's great. So that's, that's, that, that's, that's the hug, ideally, that we want to be experiencing in the sukkah. It's like, oh, God, I'm in your embrace. I feel so good. Okay. So now, how are we trying to apply this in terms of not as a sukkah's Torah, because we're not sitting in the sukkah yet, but as a pre-Yom Kippur Torah. You see, the sukkah is also something besides a hug. The sukkah represents the fact that this world is very, very temporary. Like, if you build a sukkah that's made out of bricks, it's not a kosher sukkah. Because the whole idea is to, to dwell, literally dwell, right? Because we eat in the sukkah, we sleep in the sukkah, and the, the Torah uses the word dwell, which means live. The whole idea of the sukkah is that we dwell in the fragility of life, the temporariness of this world, how just, how vulnerable we are, And in this amazing Torah Jewish way, we take this thing, which is really the, the downfall for most people's mental sanity, which is, I don't know what's about to happen next because this world is temporary and everything is fragile, and we throw a party. <laughs> we throw a seven or eight day long party celebrating the fact that I don't know what's going to happen next. Now, how can we do that? How can it be a happy occasion at all? And here's the point. The point is, the point is because we trust God. And we trust in God's goodness. That's the point. Sukkis is a celebration of trust in the goodness of God. So now, with that in mind, let's apply this to pre-Yom Kippur. Right? So, 
So pre Yom Kippur, you see, Yom Kippur, we have to we have to be happy about this 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 Yom Kippur that's coming up, right? But even more important than that, we must one ten thousand percent believe that our souls are really being cleansed. And that's not something that should just occur to us after Yom Kippur, like, okay, I guess my soul was cleansed. No, 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 you look forward to that. My so- Like this five-star hotel sauna that you got an, appo- you got an appointment. One-tenth of one percent of humanity get an appointment <laughs> at that spa. <laughs> And like, are you on the list? I'm on the list. Ah, what is it? Tuesday night. Ah. What should I wear? Wear white. Okay. Is there anything I should do in preparation? Yeah, there's a bunch of things. <laughs> right? Imagine if you were going to go to a fancy party. Right? I know... Like, a lot of people, they'll get their hair done. A lot of people will get their makeup done, even. A lot of people will, if they don't buy a new dress, they'll borrow a dress, or they'll make sure that the dress that they want to wear is is clean. Think about how how much preparation goes into just going to a party. So for, for Yom Kippur, of course there has to be preparation. But that excitement too. But here's the point. This trust in God, this trust in the goodness of God that this is about to happen. See, because I think that's the thing that's going to make us feel most at home in the sukkah is that trust in the goodness of God. And if Reb Shlomo says that how you feel in the sukkah is going to tell you what kind of Yom Kippur you're going to have, if what's going to make you feel the best in the sukkah is trust in God, that that, that means that you had a good Yom Kippur, then that means go into Yom Kippur with trust in the goodness of God. In other words, if that's the ticket to forgiveness, if that's the ticket to forgiveness, go in with the ticket. That God actually does cleanse. That God actually does heal. That God actually does forgive. And you might say, well, I don't forgive. But that's okay, God forgives. And also it's not okay. (laughs) Here, let me give you another visualization, okay? Imagine you've got like this big basket, right? A very, very big basket. And that, that basket is, is, is filled with all sorts of junk, right? So, and then you're told, you know something? The, the holiday where God or the king say, opens up his treasure house and you get to go into the king's treasure house and you get to put as much as you can put into your basket. 
as much as your kalim, your basket will fit, that's how much you can take from the king's treasure house. Wow, this is, this is fantastic. I, I would look forward to that all day, all year. Now, imagine I go in with a basket that's completely filled with junk. <laughs> I've got no room to put the king's treasure in my basket because it's filled with junk. I didn't empty out the junk, so there's no room to put in all the treasures. See, this is us. We want to get rid of before Yom Kippur. See, this was one of the big, the, the big points that I saw in the Chidush Arim. That he said, listen to this. We've got 10 days of tshuva, 10 days of return of fixing ourselves. He said, try to get your tshuva over with. Okay, there's still going to be tshuva on Yom Kippur on, on, on a level. But he says, try to get it over with before Yom Kippur. Right? Usually we're, we're kind of like, we know it's the 10 days of awe, and I guess they're special days, but really it's just kind of, just get me to Yom Kippur so I can do the work. So he's flipping it. He's going, no, 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 right now. Do the work right now. So that when you head into this unbelievable day, that your basket is going to be absolutely empty of all the junk so that you can hold all this tremendous treasure, all this tremendous light. That's great advice. That's great advice. You know, the Chose of Lublin, one of the greatest Hasidic masters, it's a whole long story, but I just got to the end of it. You know, saw someone, one of the people who was there davening with him, and he thought, you know, that guy's not going to make it. Why? Because he wasn't dancing. This concept of dancing your way into the book of life. And you think, well, how can I, how can I dance on Yom Kippur? But when you think of it in this way, how can I not dance on Yom Kippur? <laughs> so let me tell you a Gomorrah, and I'm, I'm learning this from Rabbi uh, Moshe Wolfson Shlita now, okay? Let me just tell you something that he says. The most important avoda of, of divine service that we would do in the Holy Temple would be to, to bring the katoris, that's the incense. And we would, bring, we would burn the incense, the Kain Gadol, the high priest of Israel, would burn the, the, the katoris, the, the incense, inside the Holy of Holies till the room was absolutely filled with smoke. And it was so holy, that moment of the year, it was... The holiest person, the holiest soul, came at the holiest time to the holiest place. All right, remember, the Sefer Yetzirah says that you can break down all of reality to three fundamental components, time, space, and soul. So here's the holiest soul at the holiest time in the holiest place, all coming together. And what was the Kohen Gadol doing? What was the high priest of Israel doing? He was burning incense into the room till the, till the Holy of Holies filled up with smoke. And by the way, it says it was so holy that even angels weren't permitted in that room. Isn't that interesting? It was, it was only, it was uh, the, the, the claim Gadol on behalf of all of Israel with Hashem. That's it. 
Now, there was an argument among the Jewish establishment at that period in history. And there was a group called the Tzedokim. And they were uh, literalists, meaning to say that whatever the um, five books said, whatever the Chumash said, they went by. And they rejected the oral law, the Torah Shabbat Peh. And of course, the Torah Shabbat Peh was given to Moshe Rabbeinu at Mount Sinai by God himself. In other words, what, what makes the Jewish understanding of the Torah so profoundly different from the way the other nations of the world read the Torah is the fact that we have the Torah Shabbat Peh. When God gave the Torah, bless you, when God gave the Torah to, to Moshe and Mount Sinai, and I, I, just the classic example, I'll just give you this as a classic example. We all know that when we take the, the Arba Minim, the four species on Sukkot, we use an esteric, right? An esteric is a very esoteric fruit to, to pick, right? It looks like a lemon. By the way, Rabbi Stern says that he, he, he learned that that's where the expression, you got a lemon, comes from. Right? A lemon is like if you buy a car that doesn't work, it's called a lemon. Right? So, so that the idea that someone sold the person a lemon instead of an esteric, you got a lemon. <laughs> right? Anyway, just a, just a bit of Jewish speculation there. <laughs> but anyway, it, it doesn't say in the Torah, in the, in the, in the written Torah, it doesn't say esteric. In, in, in English, by the way, we call that a citron. It says, take the fruit from the beautiful tree. That's all it says. Now, by the way, what could be more subjective than take the fruit from the beautiful tree? Why, isn't, why, why is it that for the last several thousand years, in the four corners of the world, wherever Jews have been, oh yes, you know, the Yemeni community brings cherries, and the Greek community brings kiwis, and the, you know, South American community brings coffee beans, right? Like, what? That's the way it should be, right? And everyone should have what they consider the fruit from what they consider the beautiful tree to be. And that should be, bless you, that should be the end of the discussion. Except everyone has arrived for all of Jewish history in the four quarters of the world at the esrug of all things. And that's the only thing that we use to this day. Why? Because God explained the verses of the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu when he gave, them, he gave him the Torah at Mount Sinai. God said, write this down. And of course, God dictated letter for letter the Torah itself. And, and then God explained what the passage meant to Moshe. So he says, God says to Moshe, write, write down, take the fruit of the beautiful tree. And then he said to Moshe, don't write this, but let me explain it to you what that means. That's the esteric. And, and then Moshe, when he communicated the verses to the elders and then to all the tribes and everything like that, Moshe explained, God says that means the esteric. And so we had the understanding of the passages from the very beginning. That's That's what distinguishes the Jewish people's understanding of God's word. That's what makes our understanding so special. 
and so authentic. If you don't have the Torah Shabbal Peh, if you don't have what's commonly referred to today that's translated commonly as the Talmud, or as the Gomorrah, if you don't have the Talmud, you don't know what the Torah is saying. I'll give you one more example. It says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Never in Jewish history ever has an eye been poked out of an offending person because they mistakenly poked out the eye of another person, like in a work or construction situation. You know, they're building a house and you moved your pole in a way and you took out the guy's eye. Never in Jewish history has that person's eye been taken out. But it says an eye for an eye. What that means is workman's compensation. That's what, it, that's what it's meant from the beginning. And what's funny is that workman's compensation, now how would you compensate a brain surgeon if he lost his eye? You give him a lot of money. What about a ditch digger? Well, his loss of income is not as great as a brain surgeon's. You give him less money. So there's a sliding scale. This is very enlightened. Now what's, what's funny and ironic about this is that what's, what people who don't understand what Judaism, what the Torah means at all, and just sort of like are so content in their ignorance, is they love to talk about a, a verse like an eye for an eye and a tooth for, and a, tooth for a tooth as, as, a, as a hallmark of the primitivism of, of the Torah. Look at this barbaric teaching where it's never meant that to begin with. In fact, it's been ahead of the rest of the society. That very verse has been ahead of the rest of the societies of the world for who knows how many years. It's ignorance. So what's the point? The point is, is that, again, what takes place on Yom Kippur? On Yom Kippur... The holiest soul is going to the holiest place in the world at the holiest time in the world. And he's bringing this offering of incense, which was the most special offering. By the way, it says even by non-incense offerings, right? It says that it was a reach nechoach to Hashem, which means a, a sweet smell, a sweet savior. But it wasn't even incense, they're talking about, say, a, an animal offering or something like this. So here you see that, that if the smell, so to speak, not that God has a nose, this is all metaphorical, but if the smell, so to speak, of a non-incense offering is, is delightful, how much more so for an incense offering? That was the highest. And why was it the highest, by the way? Because the B'nai Yisachar brings down that when Adam and Chava were in the Garden of Eden that all of the senses became corrupted through their eating from the tree of knowledge, except the sense of smell. Right? They listened to the snake, they listened to each other, they listened to, each other that, to eat, that's the ears. They took the fruit with their hands. It says that they saw that the fruit was beautiful, that's their eyes. They ate the fruit, that's their taste. No mention of smell. So somehow this, this gateway, this, this portal, which is like the nasal passages, right? It's like, it's this portal between heaven and earth remains absolutely intact. And you know where you see it on a weekly basis, by the way? 
after we leave Shabbos. Shabbos is called a miniature of the Garden of Eden. What is one of the things that we do when we leave Shabbos by Havdalah? We smell. We smell something beautiful, which is telling us that we're still connected to the Garden of Eden as we're, even as we're leaving the Garden of Eden to go back into the week. Don't think you've left the Garden of Eden. Don't think that your tie to the Garden of Eden, to Shabbos, to perfection, is ending just because now you have to kind of show up at the office and deal with all the things at work and all the rest. You're still connected. So there's a verse in the Torah that says that, that you should bring this incense offering lifnei Hashem, before Hashem. Well, the literalists, this segment of the Jewish people, the Tzedokim, who rejected the Torah Shabbal Peh, said, well, what does that mean? You bring the incense before Hashem. That means that you don't bring it into the Holy of Holies. You have to just take it to lifnei before Hashem. Right outside the Holy of Holies, you bring it, you offer it there. But like the, the rest of the Jewish people, the rabbis were like, no, 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 that's not, that's not what it means. Well, how do you know what it means? It says lifnei. No, 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 Torah Shabbat Peh, Hashem himself explained that that's actually in the, the, the Holy of Holies. Now listen to this. And we're wrapping it up. We're getting to the end of the point here. The Tzedokim said, we'll give you a parable to explain why we're right. Now, of course, this is wrong, but listen to how they explained it. They said, if a servant were going to prepare a meal for his master, would he prepare it in front of his master? No, 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 no. You would have it all ready, and then when you entered into the Holy of Holies, it would already be ready. Like you wouldn't be putting the incense on top of the hot coals inside the Holy of Holies, because that would be like cooking the meal in front of the king, and why would you do such a thing? So you see, here it shows much more respect that we're doing it outside the Holy of Holies. You know what? To my ears, that sounds pretty good. Except it's completely wrong. <laughs> and you want to hear something interesting? Rabbi Wolfson points out that in the Gomorrah, they never respond to that parable, to that, to that argument. It's interesting that they don't even respond. They just reject it and they don't even respond. So Rabbi Wolfson gives a nice, beautiful explanation of why, no, 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 no. You do it inside the Holy of Holies. So listen to what he says, and we'll, we'll, we'll conclude with this. He says it's true. What they're saying is true. A master wouldn't cook the meal in front of, in, in front of the king. Yes, that's right. But what about if it was the king and it was the queen? And the queen were preparing the meal, and the king was keeping the queen company in the kitchen <laughs> while dinner was being made. <laughs> that makes sense. But it's more than it makes sense. More than it making sense, it shows you that there's a completely different relationship 
that's being transacted, which is a relationship of intimacy between God and the Jewish people. That this most intimate moment of Yom Kippur, when our souls, what's more intimate to us than our souls? Right? I mean, you say, oh, you're in my heart. Okay, that's beautiful. But what about in my soul? I'll tell you something personal. When I asked my, my in-laws for permission to marry my wife, I, I, I said to them, I said, I said, you know, there are people who I've met who I would trust my life to, but I've never met anyone else that I would trust my soul to. And then my mother-in-law started crying. So this is this is the king and queen together. This is Shira Shirim. This is the Holy of Holies. This is two lovers together. This is you're not just opening up your heart. We're opening up our souls. That's what's happening. You know, I, I had the privilege of, of speaking under the chuppah at Rabbi Shlomo Katz's wedding in Israel. I'm just thinking about it right now. And I remember one of the things that I said, it was such an awesome, 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 awesome wedding. And everyone could feel it as Shlomo, even before uh, his holy bride was walking to the chuppah, as Shlomo was walking to the Papa. And I remember I said, you know, what would you do to be in the right place at the right time? How many times in our life are we at the right place at the right time? <laughs> and if you think about it, it's a... I don't know. But I remember at that moment, everyone who was there knew they were in the right place at the right time. And on Yom Kippur, right, it's the holiest soul, the holiest time, the holiest place. At Yom Kippur, if you have these thoughts in your mind, you're 1,000% at the right place at the right time. It's one of the famous teachings is, is that um, there are 365 days in the year. Um, the Gomorrah brings this Gematria. 365 days in the year, but the word Hasatan, which means the accuser, is, three, is Gematria 364. And so from that, the rabbis learn that there's one day of the year that the Satan doesn't have any hold over, and that's Yom Kippur. That's from, that's from the Gomorrah.